sure many of you in the course of your Christian lives have made a series of resolutions. You hear a rousing sermon or you're reading the scriptures or some of our youth just got back from a youth retreat and the Lord pricks your heart and you acknowledge something's not right in my life and I want to make changes. So you resolve, you make a resolution to do things differently. Perhaps some of your resolutions have included things like, I want to read God's word every single day. And so you resolve, I'm going to read God's word every day. I'm going to be a student of the book. And then a little bit of time goes by and that resolution fades and you fail. Or perhaps you've acknowledged in your life that you are not as prayerful as you should be. And so you make a resolution that you're going to be more prayerful and you commit yourselves to prayer. And then over time, the distractions of life sneak in and and you fail. Or you have an attitude or some sort of an issue internal to your life. Maybe it's unbridled anger or resentment or a lack of forgiveness. And you bring it to the Lord and you're like, Lord, I I repent of my anger or my lack of forgiveness or my bitterness. And I don't want to be that kind of man or woman. And then a little bit of time goes by and, and you fail. Or you resolve to trust God more, to hold to his promises And for a while, they encourage you, but then you forget about them and you fail. Or you realize there's sin in your life and you commit yourself to purity. I want to be pure in my thinking. I want to be pure in my actions. And a little bit of time goes by and you have some victory, but then you fail. And it can be quite discouraging to fail time and time again after you've made a resolution and a commitment to God. It can be painful and shameful to fail. Most Christians that I know, in fact, I would say that all true Christians, understand this challenge. Simultaneously, we want to draw closer to the Lord. We want to honor him with our lives. We want to obey him. We want to be more more like Jesus. We want to walk in wisdom, but we are also very well aware of our own propensity to backslide and to fail and to sin and to get back on the, the hamster wheel. Feels like we're, we're going nowhere fast. Well, brothers and sisters, we are not the first generation of believers in God to experience this agony of resolve followed by failure. King Solomon perhaps more than many others, typifies, on one hand, a thoughtful, wise, just, God-ordained, God-fearing believer who did many great things, who was used by God to write most of the Song of Solomon, the Book of Ecclesiastes, the Proverbs, some of the great wisdom books of our Bible. But at the same time, His life was also marked at times by abject failure. And he lived in that tension. He's both a good example and a bad example for us, as are all of the multidimensional characters of Scripture. His life, in many ways, reminds us of a theme that I'd like to unpack with you over the next three or four months. And it's this theme of human failure and divine grace. Human failure and divine grace. I'd like to take you on a journey through the first 11 chapters of the book of 1 Kings. And the title of this sermon series 
is Human Failure and Divine Grace, The Life of King Solomon. And the book is going to help us to understand the life and times of King Solomon, but it's not going to be a man-centered sermon series. It's going to be a God-centered sermon series. In other words, the takeaway is not be like Solomon, but let's look to the God of Solomon. When Solomon fails, it's not going to be, well, just don't be like Solomon. It's going to be look to the God of grace and forgiveness and mercy that Solomon also worship. We're going to learn from him about our human failure and God's grace and how to respond to it and how not to. We're going to see some of our own propensities towards sin. And we're going to see how God ultimately has his way regardless of whether we are obedient or not. This is the subject, one of the subjects we want to talk about in this new sermon series. Now, this particular sermon title is not meant to make you giggle or make you feel uncomfortable. But the title of this particular sermon is Impotence and the Quest for Power. Now, when we hear the word impotence, we would naturally think of sexual impotence. And there are elements of that in the narrative we will explore together today. But even the sexual impotence that we see in one of the figures of this text is meant to highlight for us a greater form of impotence. And that is a failure to bridle the power of God in one's life to accomplish the purposes of God for one's life. In other words, we're going to look at the sin of passivity. And then we're also going to look at the sin of usurpation. When people seek to usurp, to overtake to grab power that does not belong to them. And both of these are things for us to avoid, but they're temptations. And depending on your personality or your place in life, it's easy to fall prey to one of these traps. Most of us live multidimensional lives. I live in the sphere of marriage. I live in the sphere of being a father. I live in the sphere of being a citizen. I live in the sphere of being a pastor. And in each of these spheres of my life, I'm given a measure of power or influence or authority to different degrees, depending on the sphere I'm in. And the human temptation is either to, on one hand, seek power God has not given to us, or to be passive in the power and authority that God has given to us, to fail to utilize it and to exercise it in keeping with our calling. And both of these sins are going to be displayed in the text. Impotence, i.e. passivity, and the quest for power, usurpation. Now here's a lesson we're going to learn from the first chapter. I'll give it to you in the form of a couple of sentences, and then we'll unpack it piece by piece. The first lesson that we'll learn from 1 Kings is found in chapter 1, and it is this, that the natural man, when I say natural man, I mean the man that is not in tune with God's purposes for his or her life, that is not dialed in to the things of God, that is not living in submission and humility under God. The natural man seeks power regardless of whether it is God's intention for him. God, however, appoints men to power to accomplish his purposes through them. 
So we have two things going on here in the text. The natural man that seeks power, that quests after power that God has not assigned to him. And then we have God assigning power to someone that's rather unexpected, actually, in order to accomplish God's purposes through him. Now, you may not feel comfortable with the word power because you see it as a negative word, but it's not a negative word. I'm using it in relationship to the authority God has given to each of us in different realms of life or the influence, the ministry, the stewardship, if you will, that God has given to us in various circles of our lives. So the takeaway is this, that we are to stay in our lanes. It's best to stay in your lane and fulfill God's calling for you until you die, till death. So we need to figure out what is God's, what power has God given to me? What authority God has God given to me? What opportunities has God given to me? And ask, how do I steward that power, that authority for God in the various spheres of my life? Now, at the back, we have four of the most handsome men in our church up in our sound booth. And maybe you could just turn around and say, hey, thank you for all your efforts. All right, there we are. Okay. And every week what I do is I send them on Thursday or Friday my sermon outline and all the verses I'm going to preach. And they and their team work on it. And they put it into all these slides. But today I'm going to be preaching from 53 verses in the Bible. So the Bible says dedicate yourself to preaching in season and out, out of season. It also says dedicate yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So probably half my sermon today is just going to be reading Scripture for you. And I thought to myself, which would be easier for these guys to put together 53 different slides with all the verses on it or for you to bring your Bible to church today? And I think it's easier for you to bring your Bible to church today. So for the first time in a long time, I'm not putting any of the scriptures up on the screen. I want to bully, coerce, and encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. If you want to bring an electronic Bible, that's totally fine. Open your phone and go to the English Standard Version and you can find your way to 1 Kings 1. I will have my main headings and some of my subpoints up on the screen if you're taking notes. But we're going to read the, the passage in, in its entirety throughout the course of the sermon and then kind of break it down into, into bite-sized pieces. So we, the big idea here is to stay in your lane and fulfill God's calling till death. And this starts with point number one. There's going to be three points. Point number one, maintain your calling Till the end. Maintain your calling till the end. So you've heard it. Let's read the Bible and then we'll explain that a little bit more. So as we enter into King Solomon's life, we start first of all by being reintroduced to his father, who was King David, the youngest son. That's important. Keep that in the back of your mind so it'll come up later in the text. The youngest son of Jesse, who above all odds was appointed as God's choice theocratic king. First of Judah, ruling for seven years in Hebron, and then over all of Israel, ruling for 33 additional years, for a total reign of 40 years over God's people. And we start off with a description of the last few weeks or months of his life. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Now, this is, this is a problem. Keep in mind, he's living in essentially a tropical-type area. He's living in Israel. It's warm there. This isn't Canada. 
but he is portrayed in the text as a frail old man that can't even keep himself warm in a hot, arid climate. So things are not looking good for him. Therefore, his servant said to him, and this is, by the way, guys, descriptive, not prescriptive. Okay? It's a little bit odd, but this old man is shivering in his bed, so his servants come up with this rather strange solution. There's a reason for it. Let a young woman be sought for my lord, the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Okay, nothing so weird about that, but here's where it gets a little odd. Let her lie in your arms that my lord, the king, may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful, this is important, young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful. Why do we need to know that? The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him. But the king knew her not, which means he did not have sexual relationships with her. Now we know that King David had lived an incredible life. In his younger years, he was a shepherd boy. He was a valiant shepherd boy. He protected the flock from lions, from bears. He defeated Goliath. He led the people of Israel in victory after victory after victory. He loved God. He would dance unashamedly before God. He wrote many of our Psalms and our Psalter. David has so many positives about him, but here things don't look so good for David. David began his kingly ministry well, but he he ended rather poorly. He lost his steam. He lost his sexual steam. He lost his physical steam. And we'll see momentarily that he lost his spiritual leadership, his sons were out of control more often than not. He was affected spiritually and he was affected physically. Now it's notable that throughout David's reign, he's usually portrayed as this vigorous warrior-like king who's competent, who can be trusted, who overcomes the odds, who loves God. He's, He's tender and he's a warrior somehow all at once. He's a pretty awesome guy. He loves God, but he's also a man's man. But here at the tail end of his life, we discover that he dies around the age of 70, which isn't particularly old for a warrior king, after having ruled over Israel for 40 years. Now, while this certainly meets the the minimum, the three score and 10 allotment that God has declared in Psalm 90, that the average lifespan from there forward would be around three score and 10 or 70 years, we certainly wouldn't see this as a life with any extra innings in it, would we? If you compare his lifespan to some of the antediluvian characters, the people that lived before the flood, some of them lived for close to a thousand years. After the flood, in the post-antediluvian era, many of the figures lived for 150, 200 years. But David just sort of barely gets to three score and 10. And the remaining years of his life aren't aren't particularly glamorous. His son Amnon had raped his half-sister and been put to death by his next son Absalom. 
His son Absalom had tried to usurp and steal the throne from his father David, even sleeping with his father's harem in public, and was put to death against David's will, but at the hand of David's generals. And now we're going to meet a third son that tries to usurp the throne. And David just seems to be passive to all this. He's not responding well. This is likely to remind the leader as we, or the reader rather, as we enter into a study of Solomon's life and we reflect back upon the man that came before him, that even a good life can quickly be frittered away if we go into quote unquote retirement or passivity too easily. David had rebellious sons. In his later years, he had had a man murdered so he could get his wife. He'd committed adultery. And it's perhaps intended to be a good reminder to us that even godly men, even godly women, who may have served God for the vast majority of their lives with success, can easily flub it in the end if we're careful not to dedicate the whole of our lives to worthy pursuits. It's true that as you age, you change pace. If you think of life as a racetrack, you know, when you're young and strong, you may be going a little faster around the track. And as you age, you may slow down a little bit. But getting off the track, getting out of the race is an incredibly bad idea. And David is framed up here as essentially a passive, impotent old man who's just frittering away the later years of his life. And so right from the beginning of Solomon's life, we see this theme of human failure and divine grace in his own father's life. By the way, fathers affect the lives of their sons for the good or for the bad. This is why it's important for those of you that are fathers to take seriously the task to set a good example for your sons till death, not to grow passive, not to shirk your responsibility to confront them when they're going a little nutty, when they're engaged in pursuits that are dishonoring to the Lord. And it's also a reminder to those of us that are sons, and if you're a man, every one of you is a son, to take stock of the influence of your own father over your life and to benefit from his positives and to denounce his weaknesses in your own life. David was a man after God's own heart on one hand. He's called that in the book of Acts. But he also at times dramatically failed to honor the Lord. God still uses him and used him right up till the end. We're going to see that in our text. But there's also consequences to his failures. Generational consequences to his failures. And there almost always are. Well, the second thing we learn about David is that his advisors decide because of his weak position This puts him in a vulnerable place. He's a warrior king. One of the responsibilities of kings in the ancient Near East was to fight, to defend, to make difficult decisions, to protect the people from attack. And he's not looking so good. So they come up with what they think is an ingenious solution. He needs a nurse. He needs a personal support worker, a PSW. So they look around and they don't just pick any old nurse. They, they, they decide, well, hey, here's a good idea. He needs a nurse, but let's not make it too obvious that he needs a nurse. Let's find a beautiful woman that we can bring to him, give her essentially the rank of a concubine or a wife, 
she kind of has to have that rank in order to be sleeping in his bed. And, and that way we can sort of communicate to the watching world that he's not this old, washed up, weak, impotent man. He still has sexual vigor. Because after all, manliness is always connected to sexual vigor. So let's do our work and find the most beautiful girl that we can possibly find. She can function as his nurse, but at the same time, it'll give this, this impression that he's still sexually active. He's, he's this virile ruler who can be trusted even in his latter years. Now she's called a Shunammite from a small village called Shunam. Just as an aside, we don't want to make much of this, but that word is not much different than the word Shulamite, which comes up in the Song of Solomon. And some people actually believe that it was Abishag, the Shunammite, in 1 Kings chapter 1, that becomes the lover of Solomon in the Song of Solomon some years later. We don't know if that's true or not, but it's an interesting hypothesis. So this is the ruse. This is the plan that David's advisors come up with. And it fails. Here we have recorded for us, for all to see in the word of God, that the king knew her not. The public would have known that in some way, shape, or form. Maybe one of the servants spilled the beans. Yeah, there's nothing going on there. I can tell you there's nothing going on. So somehow the the community finds out that David was not sexually active, that she really was nothing more than a nurse remained a virgin in his bed to keep him warm at night. Well, in this state of weakness, his next oldest son figures, dad's way over the hill. He's on his last legs. He's got one of the most beautiful women in our nation in his bed. And he's not even able to perform sexually. So it's my turn to step up and take the reins of power over the nation of Israel. And it's in this state of weakness that his oldest son, his oldest living son, without consulting his father, tries to grab power. Now, Adonijah. So we have Amnon. Things didn't end so well for him. We have Absalom. And now we have Adonijah, his third son. Notice their names all begin with A. Never trust a guy whose name begins with an A. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself. So he exalts himself. That tips you right off. Okay, this is not a good guy. He exalted himself. He doesn't exalt God. It's, it's a, his desire for power does not come from beyond. It's not affirmed by the community of faith. It doesn't come from his father. It comes from him. He exalts himself. So he's a one-dimensional character. He's selfish. He's selfish. He's manipulative. Saying... I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. So in the civic realm, he wants to present himself as a warrior king. It's deliberate. Dad's impotent. He's passive. I am the warrior king that you need. I have chariots at my disposal. I'm a military ruler. I can defend you. You should stand with me. So first of all, in the civil realm, he presents himself as a powerful figure. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? So what does that tell us? David knew about his antics. And the writer goes to great length to tell us his father said nothing, did nothing. This is Adam's sin, brothers. 
This is the Edenic sin. This is the classical male sin. Passivity. You're given authority. You're given responsibility. It's not worth it. I'm just going to go watch the ball game. I don't want to get into it. I'm too old for this kind of stuff. Who cares about what happens to the next generation? This is the Edenic sin. Adam was silent beside Eve when she was being tempted. And David, the messianic king, is silent. He's already lost two boys. You think you'd learned your lesson by now. The third son is acting like a public moron. And he says nothing. And again, this is going to come back to bite him. Now, as with Absalom, this guy externally has some features that people are attracted to. He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. They had different moms. David presumably must have been a pretty good-looking guy, because whenever his sons are described, they're always good-looking men. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruah, and Abathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shemai and Ray and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. So now we have a division in the lieutenants that had in the United Way served under David for so many years. Adonijah, then not only has he professed his military prowess, but now he wants to profess his spiritual prowess because the king of Israel was supposed to function in a sense as a prophet, a priest, and a king. He was a civil ruler, but he was also a theocratic king, a God-centered king. So he puts on this big spiritual display. He sacrifices sheep, oxen, fat, and cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons. There was close to 20 of them. And all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the mighty men or Solomon, his brother. What does that tell you? He knows something about Solomon is different than the rest of his brothers. He's a political player. His own brothers had tragically died, Absalom via or Amnon via Absalom and Absalom via his own usurpation. But he assumed, well, I'm a good-looking guy, I'm the oldest, so I automatically qualify for kingship. But he knew that he'd not been appointed as king by God. So, the second lesson is this, that your external qualifications don't amount to a divine appointment. Well, I'm the oldest guy in the room, so I should have the most say. Well, I, ha- I have the, I tithe the most. So I should have the most power in my church. Well, I have a seminary degree, so I should have the right to preach or teach. Well, I have this or I have that. Well, your external qualifications don't amount to a divine appointment. One of the interesting things about God is he almost always picks the people you don't expect. Almost always. Which is the gospel. The rebel. The foreigner the proverbial Gentile receives grace and the haughty, the presumptive, the religious elite do not. This is one of the things we see time and time and 
again in the gospel. You can have all the external qualities people might look for. You go, let's say you're applying for a job. You're an engineer. Lots of engineers in Windsor. You're a nurse. You're in healthcare. You're in the trades. You're a teacher. You're a professor. You take your resume to your potential place of employment. You drop it down on the counter. You email it in. Are they going to say, hey, I got a question for you. What's your, uh, what's your marriage like? You and your wife um, reflecting Christ-like virtues? They're not going to ask you that. Hey, what's, what's your prayer life like? Uh, are you the kind of person that consults? They're not going to ask you that. They just concern themselves with, do you present yourself well? Do you look the role? And do you have the credentials? That's all they care about. And so we're, we're in a culture that fans that flame, even when it comes to our walk with Christ and our ministry assignments. But that's not how God looks at things. God looks not at the outward appearance, but at the heart. We saw this happening in David's life. David was the pipsqueak of all these mature, older brothers. And God selected him when this little boy goes out on the battlefield, the smallest guy in the battlefield, and he's pitted against the biggest guy in the battlefield. And guess who wins? The smallest guy wins because God is with him. So your external qualifications don't amount to a divine appointment. Now, while all this is happening, David is reminded of a decision that he had already made in appointing Solomon to be king. Now, when David appointed Solomon to be king, he didn't appoint Solomon to be king because he was his favorite son. We don't really know what the relationship was like between David and his sons. Like most old covenant fathers, it probably wasn't particularly intimate. If you think about it, it's kind of hard to pick biblical biblical figures from the Bible and preach on them as archetype fathers for Father's Day sermons. Because most of them are passive or they play favorites or they have all sorts of idiosyncrasies. We don't know what the relationship was between David and his sons. I don't think it was necessarily that great. But what we do know is that David, at this point, shows no evidence of mental decline. And twice in the word of God, we have a record of God coming to David and David appointing Solomon preemptively as the next king. You can write down 1 Chronicles 29, if you want to reference that record. And you can also write down 2 Samuel chapter 15. In both of these chapters, God comes to David and he says, the next king is going to be Solomon. I want you to appoint him. So this is why, this explains why Adonijah, who must have known that to, to, to exclude one out of his many brothers, excludes Solomon as from being part of his coup. David had approximately 20-ish sons in total. Again, a couple of them had already been killed. But with his ascension, God had directed him to pick one of his Younger sons. Remember I said he ruled in Hebron for seven years? Many of his older boys were born in Hebron. They were several years older than Solomon. Solomon was born later when David was the king of the United Kingdom of Israel. And by the way, I'll just say this. It's notable that Solomon's birth into the world came about as a result of a murder and an adulterous relationship. Now, does that mean, oh, we should go murder people and commit adulterous acts because we want God to be able to do cool things through our stupidity? Obviously not. But it shows that God can even 
unscramble the egg, so to speak. God can take that which is messy, that which is brutal, that which is sinful, and he can bring about his own redemptive purposes through it. And Solomon ultimately was the second son, first one died in infancy, of the relationship between David and Bathsheba. Much younger. But this story here, this account, reminds us of this gospel theme, which we see all through scripture, in that God gives grace time and time again to the unexpected. It's like, who would have thunk that? Solomon, really? The son of Bathsheba? Do you know how that relationship started? A son that wasn't born in Hebron, who had older brothers that were handsome and virile and warrior. Why would he pick Solomon? Because God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And God will fulfill his purposes as he sees fit. So, verse 11. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it. David obviously knew about his antics with the chariots on the streets and his entourage of buddies running around with him, but he wasn't aware that he'd appointed himself king. Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. By the way, this is the same prophet that had to confront David years earlier about his adultery with Bathsheba. So evidently, the prophet also believed in restoration and that God's hand was on David. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, meaning Bathsheba, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are speaking with the king, I also will come in in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went into the king, into his chamber. Now the king was very old. We're told that again. Abishag, the Shunammite, was attending to the king. So again, he's pretty feeble, but he still has his mind about him. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king. And the king said, what do you desire? She said to him, my Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me. And he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my Lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king. This should get David a little bit concerned. Abithar the priest, Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon, your servant, has not been invited. In other words, put two and two together. (laughs) This is a coup. And now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord, the king, sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. In other words, our lives will be on the line. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in and he told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he had come in after the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And now, from verse 24 to verse 26, he basically recalls and recounts the same events that Bathsheba has recalled and accounted because this is historical narrative. You ever have someone say as a sidebar, the Bible's a myth? 
Well, if it's a myth, it's pretty bad mythological literature because it's the genre is not myth. This is historical. It's recording details, place, names, events, and sequence in an order. It's repeating them. Verse 27, has this thing been brought about by my Lord, the King, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my Lord, the King after him? So now he hears it from Bathsheba. He hears it from Nathan. He has no excuse. He has to adjudicate. He has to make a decision. When King David, then King David answered, call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king and the king swore saying, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity? Suddenly he's recalling to mind God's redemptive work in his own life sort of brings him back to attention. By the way, that's the way out of passivity. Recalling to mind God's redemptive work in your life, your responsibility, the kingship of God. As I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne in my place. It's very categorical. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground and paid homage to the king. And then she says, this is kind of weird. May my Lord King David live forever. He's about to die. Is this just like shallow platitudes? Maybe in part, but I see prophecy here because the Davidic king, in fact, never did die. Oh, David died. But in keeping with God's promises, through David's line, the world would be blessed by a son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's called in the New Testament. And so in that respect, the King David in his Davidic line endured up to the time of Christ. And still today, the Davidic king rightly rules over all peoples of the earth. And so while she may have thrown it out as a bit of a compliment or because, well, that's what you're supposed to say to a king. I think there's a bit of gospel prophecy in here and that this king who would be the great, 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 great granddaddy of King Jesus, the Messiah, still lives today. Now, King David said, call me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the son of Jehodiah. So they came before the king and the king sent to them. So he repeats it. Take you to the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule, bring him down to Gihon, let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet. It's a big coronation service and say, long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord and king say so. So the Lord has been with my Lord, the king. Even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. And then we have a description in verse 28 of these various individuals, Zadok, Nathan, Benaiah, accomplishing those purposes. 
And there Zadok, verse 39, the priest blew the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And then they blew the trumpet and the people said, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. Perhaps not literally, but the ground felt like it was shaking, like it was an earthquake because there was such jubilation and joy and buy-in and applause to the new king of Israel and Judah. Well, surprise, surprise, God gets his way. All things work out for God's glory and honor. God always gets his way. By the way, he still does today. God will always get his way. Now, Solomon, we need to understand as God's man, isn't just a parliamentarian. We think of king, maybe we think of our parliament, some sort of a, an analogous institution, or we think of King Charles III as an analogous institution. But in fact, the king of Israel was truly a theocratic king. He was a theocratic king. He was to exemplify God to the people. He was to exemplify justice, the justice of God. He was to exemplify the mercy and forgiveness of God. He was to be a prophetic voice to the people of God, calling them back to faithfulness. He was to serve as in a priestly role, ensuring that the nation was spiritually on track. And then, of course, the, the stereotypical kingly duties of defending the borders and expanding the nation and making sure the commerce was properly ordered. Solomon, in many respects, in his strengths, typifies the messianic king that he was supposed to be. Adonijah does not. He's about himself. But right out of the gates, one of the first characteristics we learn about Solomon is that he was a man of justice. Now, what do we mean by justice? Well, the just judge is not afraid to identify and name sin and call the sinner to repentance. But in calling the sinner to repentance, the just judge also offers mercy. So this is, this is the gospel in a narrative form. As the messianic king, Solomon, addresses his usurping brother, Adonijah. Check it out. Here we have the sinner pardoned by a merciful king, who if he'd been self-protected would have just set off with his head. But the sinner here is pardoned by a merciful king. Adonijah and all the guests that were with him heard as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? They're kind of obtuse to what's going on. Verse 42, while he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abathar, the priest came and Adonijah said, come in for you are a worthy man and bring good news. He figured this guy's probably got some great news for me. Jonathan answered Adonijah, no, for your Lord King David has made Solomon king. You can see the color draining from his, his face as he hears this news. And the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and they had to ride 
And they had him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have appointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Noise of celebration, but for him what? Noise of defeat. Noise of doom. Noise that this may be his last day on earth. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, may your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours. So he's got an additional problem. The old king's still alive. So that doesn't even give him an opening to try to usurp, try to drag Solomon off the phone, uh, throne because David's still alive. So this guy is done for. May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. You got to kind of feel bad for the sinner here because he's been outed. And there's no opportunity for escape. He's literally damned. He's damned. He's done for. But listen to this. You think his buddies would rally around him, right? Well, when you're damned, can't you rescue yourself? Can't someone else rescue? Can't religion rescue you? Won't people rally? No, no, no. When you're damned, you're damned. When you're done, you're done. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. His structures, his friendships, his co-conspirators, they're damned too. And they all flee. He's literally at the mercy of one man, the theocratic king, foreshadowing the messianic ruler. There's only one person that can show mercy to him now. Will he? What will Solomon do? So Adonijah ran, arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar in the tabernacle Then it was told Solomon, behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon. For behold, he has laid laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me that he will not put a servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, if, so this is what we call a conditional clause, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. That is the very definition of justice. Mercy that requires repentance. Mercy that requires repentance. So King Solomon sent and brought him down from the altar, and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. So for all intents and purposes, he is repentant, at least on the outside. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. What is your house? Your house is your safe place. It's your place of peace. So it's like saying, okay, go and live in peace. You and I, we're fine. We're now at peace. But there's a requirement. You need to show yourself to be faithful. Now, we'll see at a later date whether he holds up his end of the bargain. But for now, let's just say this. As with all Messianic kings, when they are ruling properly, they display aspects of the true king who is Christ, aspects of the true Messiah, the ultimate Messiah, 
of the gospel. Here we see Solomon. It would have been easier for him to say, look, I don't want to take a risk with this guy. This guy's dangerous. Just put him to death. Everyone would have said, no problem. We'll put him to death. He doesn't do that. He offers mercy. He offers grace. And he offers peace. Restoration. But as with repentance, there's an expectation for true life change. You can't usurp the king's authority anymore. You connecting the dots here, folks? You can't keep usurping the king's authority and living outside of your assigned authority and then at the same time telling everyone you're a servant of the true king. You just can't do that. And you can't do that with the ultimate Davidic king either, by the way. You can't say, well, hey, thanks for the mercy, Jesus. Thanks for saving me, but I'm going to live however I want. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to usurp your authority whenever I feel like it because you gave me mercy. No, no, no. That's not how it works. The truly repentant, the truly repentant will continue for the duration of their lives to pay homage to the true king. They will not seek to usurp the true messianic king's rule. And they will not rebel against his leadership in their lives. Again, we'll see how this works out in the future for Adonijah. Well, let me apply it directly to you and to myself. We may not have usurped a literal throne, but we all have a little bit of Adonijah in us, do we not? In that we often seek power that has not been assigned to us. We often usurp the true king who alone reigns supreme by our rebellion against him, by not inviting him to the party, by not inviting him to the decision. We've all usurped God. That's the nature of sin, to disobey, to miss the mark, to rebel against God. And God, through Christ, has also offered to us mercy. It would have been easier for him to say, you know what? Let's just wipe the planet out. Let's get rid of all the offspring of Adam and Eve. They're all rebellious. There's no hope here. But he offers mercy. And yet at the same time, his mercy requires obedience. You need to respond to his unmerited mercy with obedience by paying him homage, by living in light of his calling for you. And if you fail to do that, you also need to repent. The beautiful thing is when you repent, you can also live at peace. You can return to your home. You can live at peace with the true king. Here's three points of application to end this sermon. Number one, you all have a calling. Know it, seek it out, seek the face of a Lord and maintain it. Don't try to be someone you're not. Don't seek power God has not given to you. If you do, God will judge you. Ladies, it is not your calling to be the head of your marriages. That's your husband's calling. Don't try to usurp your husband's authority. It's not going to go well for you. Children, you are under the authority of your parents until you leave and cleave. Don't try to usurp your parents' authority. It's not going to go well for you. Congregants, this isn't a democracy. You are under the authority of the elders of the church. Do not usurp their authority or it's not going to go well for you. Each of us has various measures of authority given to us in life. We often call those spheres. We have a calling. 
we have gifts, we have abilities, we have a place in our society, in our homes, in our places of employment, in our churches that God has assigned us to. We need to know our calling and we need to maintain our calling instead of usurping. See, we have impotence and the quest for power. This is a warning. Don't quest after power. God has not assigned to you. Secondly, how do you know what your assignment is? Well, just as with Solomon, there's going to be divine approval and chances are there's going to be some human approval. God spoke to David as to who the next king of Israel would be. Solomon. And then David declared that to Bathsheba. He declared it to the nation. He declared it to his counselors. And he set up the ceremony to make sure it would happen. This is true in almost every sphere of ministry life. Elders are not self-appointed. Evangelists are not self-appointed. Missionaries are not self-appointed. We have a calling from God, but it's not just me and Jesus sorting it out. There's all, there also needs to be affirmation from God's people, especially when we are called to an area of Christian ministry from those in a rightful, dual, duly appointed position of human authority to affirm our calling. So the, I guess the takeaway is don't be a Lone Ranger Christian. Be a part of the church. None of us is the whole church, but be a part of the church. And as you're seeking out God's unique calling for you, make sure there's divine approval and approval from duly appointed human authority. Number three, the sinner, even one who has committed great sins, murder, adultery, usurpation, passivity, can be forgiven of great offense, but we must live repentantly. We must live repentantly before God. When we drift from God's plan by either mimicking Adonijah's rebellion, wanting power that's not assigned to us, or David's passivity, not stewarding power that has been assigned to us, Depending on who you are, your story, what little sphere you find yourself in, you may drift from one to the other in the same life. Wanting power that God has not assigned to you. Usurping authority and ultimately usurping his authority or being passive in the stewardship of authority God has given to you. This is, this is the, the male sin. I'll just say this, guys. I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. I'm a guy too. But this is something every man in this room needs to have both antennas up in the air and be tuned into. Are you, if you're married, are you passive in your marriage? If you are, you need to repent. If your kids are little punks and everyone else knows it, but you've excused it away, you need to repent doesn't mean you need to lord it over your wife or your children or be a jerk or be mean. If you're that, you need to repent of that too. But you are called to lead your wife and your children, and it's hard. And every one of us has a little bit of Adam in us. Where we're, I don't want to do it. It's not worth it. My wife's not going to like it. What if my kids don't respond? I'm just going to go play video games. I'm just going to disappear into the local athletic stadium, whatever it might be, whatever your place of escape is. Denounce passivity 
and steward the power that God has given you. It's true of pastors and church leaders. It's not easy being an authoritative leader. People might think you're prideful. If I had a dollar for every time I'd been accused of that. We want the passive pastor. That's what we want, the passive pastors. We want a democracy in our church where everyone has equal say. It's not biblical. It's not going to happen here. Might make you feel better. Might make me feel better. It's not biblical. Ain't going to happen here. We need to denounce passivity and actually lovingly lead the flock of God as shepherds of the sheep and not apologize for that. This is the male sin, passivity, passivity. And we need to denounce it. It's failing to steward the power that God has given to us. And it's a sin. It never goes well. God doesn't like it. We lose either way and people suffer. But when we humbly steward whatever measure of power or authority God has assigned to us, the burden of serving is actually lightened. And the blessing to other people is heightened. And that's the deal. So let's pray that God would enable us to live wisely and put these lessons into practice. Starting now. Let's pray to that end. 